First of all, thank you to Gedalia for the introduction, for the welcome. And yeah, it was important to me to be able to be part of the weekend in some limited capacity. I'm, I literally came in just for this talk and I'll be heading back right after. But you're in a good place right now. You're in a very good place. And uh, whatever it is that you've been looking for, if you keep your eyes open, this Shabbos, I'm sure you'll find it, or at least you'll find the direction to start if you haven't yet found a direction to start, or if you've started in a direction and you need Chizuk to, to continue. What I'm saying is there's a, there's a lot of wisdom, a lot of inspiration, a lot of chizuk, a lot of encouragement, a lot of clarity, oh, clarity, yeah, at, at, at this place with these people in this time, so, yeah. I'll join in the clapping because you're not clapping for me. <laughs> Okay, so the, the talk tonight, actually there are many times I get up and I talk and I didn't even give the title for the talk. Sometimes I didn't even know the title for the talk. That, but that, that's not tonight. Tonight actually I, I gave the title. Gedalia asked me what to call it. I told him how to see our children. And if I can do anything tonight, what I want to help you to start doing is to have maybe a better vision of not only your child who is the official reason why you're here but of all of your children and really of all of us who are Hashem's children how to properly how to see each other There was a, a shul, Shabbos Vallejo, not Vo'era, this week's Vo'era, but Shabbos Vallejo, <clears throat> when it's uh, the Akedo. So the Rav got up and he said a drosha about Akedis Yitzchok, about how Avram went to go shecht his son, and it was big Nesayin. So afterwards, there were a few Pashata Yidin who were discussing the Rav's drosha. And they were very simple Jews, and they were trying to figure out how old was Yitzchak during this story that they just heard. And we, we know he was 37, but they, they were Poshet Yidin, so they were, they were trying to figure it out from context. So one of them said, you know, I think he was a little kid, because his father said, let's go, and he went, he didn't ask questions, he just went, he was, he was, a, he was a child. Then another one said, you know what, though? Remember, he was helping to carry the wood. So he had to be strong. He was grown up. I think he was, he was an adult. And then another one said, you know what? Maybe it's in between. Maybe not a child. Maybe not an adult. I bet you Yitzchok, at the time of the Akedah, was probably a teenager. And the two other simple Jews turned to him and they said, nah. Couldn't have been a teenager. Why not? Because if he would have been a teenager at the time of the Akedah, 
then to shecht him would not be such a nesoyen. <laughs> so, and, and <laughs> this is a universal joke. Teenagers are universally difficult. And uh, some teenagers more than others. Teenagers are not yet adults. They haven't found themselves. But they're not children. You can't just move them along. You have to convince them. You have to debate with them. And they have answers. They have arguments. This, I'm, just talk, I'm talking about regular parenting of teenagers is challenging because... <laughs> They, they're finding their identity. It's actually healthy. It's necessary. Everyone has to, at some point, figure out who they are on their own. So they, there's a little bit of separation. And very, very rarely does that separation happen gracefully. Usually, as they're learning to find their own identity, there's a certain awkward stage where they're, you know, they're fighting too much. They're rebelling just to figure out who they are separate from their own family of origin. And that's why the, the teenage years are always, oh, no, not always, but generally, universally, commonly, the teenage years are just difficult all around. And by the way, I'm not just talking for the parents. It, you know, it's difficult to be a teenager. And again, I'm talking about regular adolescence. It's, you're, 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 you're going through all these changes physically, socially, you have new opportunities, new responsibilities, your brain is starting to work on, a, on, a, on another level where you can actually think philosophically so you keep yourself up at night worrying with new, whole new level of worries. Being a teen is, you know, you have all the, the existential dread and like you start worrying about what's the point of it all and I, it's, it's difficult to be a teenager. Difficult to be a teenager. It's diff difficult to be around them, difficult to be one. It's difficult to be a teenager. And then, of course, you have... <laughs> there's, there's an old uh, expression that the Jews are just like everybody else, only more so. <laughs> so then there's the teenager squared, you know, an extra dose of teenage-itis. And so the separation and the confrontation and the conflict and the establishing my identity and how I'm different from you, it gets compounded, it becomes even more exaggerated. And what I want to ask you to do is I want you to think about the teen in your life And I want you to try to remember when he or she was a baby. When they were lying there in their crib and you were watching them and quelling, look at this precious, beautiful child. And I, and I want you to ask yourself, what happened 
from that time until this time that the quelling and the nachas and the pride and the excitement and the love and the passion changed into uh, frustration and annoyance and disappointment and heartbreak. They grew up. Okay, they grew up. Somebody says they grew up. Why is that fair? That because they grew up, I have to change how I feel about them. When they were a baby, you were able to be proud of them for no reason. What did they do as babies? That's how they didn't annoy you. What did they do to actually make you proud? What does a baby do? They lie there, they spit up, they make in their diaper, There's no, they cry, and they cry at three in the morning. They don't care, they have no guilt. They're ha yeah, you, you, you think they're happy to see you. They're, they're passing gas, they're not happy to see you. He smiled, yeah, he's smiling. And yet you're so proud of them. Look at this perfect baby, this bundle of joy. And so I want to know how come when we're babies, we're perfect bundles of joy. And then when we grow up, everyone's getting annoyed with us. And in order to not have people annoyed with us, there's all these things we have to do to earn their approval. Think about the pressure now. When I was a baby, I, I didn't have to do anything. I didn't even have to wake up and people were happy with me. And now, all these expectations that I have to do in order to earn your approval, to earn your smile. When I was a baby, I got your smile for free. I didn't have to do anything to earn it. And now, the default is if I'm not earning your smile, then I'm, I'm an annoyance, I'm an intrusion, causing you agmas nefesh, don't think I don't know it. I know you're losing sleep over me. What happened? So I want to tell you something. I have a theory about this. It's just my theory. I noticed that there are two times in life when everybody is good. When everyone will say that you are good. There are two times in life. Every, you're good. So the first one I already said is the aforementioned when you're a baby. All babies are beautiful. All babies are wonderful, at least to their parents, to their parents. And the other time, when you die. Dead people are all tzaddikim. You see this all the time. Oh, you're so good. So basically, what does that mean? The only two times in life you get a free pass is when you just got to this world or you just left it. Everything in between, you got to earn your keep. 
and we're watching you. And we'll decide whether or not uh, we like to have you around. But if you're a baby, if you're just born, you just came to this world, nobody's judging you. They're not deciding whether or not you get to be here. You get a free pass. You get to be here. And if you just died, then you're good also. So here's something that occurred to me. Because I thought about that a lot. And, and here's, here's what I think. I think that the way we view babies and dead people is actually correct. It's actually correct. And it's the whole <laughs> span of time in between that we get it wrong. And I think the reason that we get it correct is because if you think about who am I, who am I? What am I really? I'm a neshama. A piece of godliness. How can you not love a neshama? How could you not enjoy being in the presence of a neshama, thinking of a neshama? Picturing a neshama. So what happens is when we first came to the world and we just got our body, <laughs> I, I, think, I think we're all sort of aware of the fact a neshama has just come to visit us. And so I think part of the chain that babies have is that we sense this is a neshama. And then it also explains why when people die, we also think favorably of them because now they left their body behind. Now all they are is a neshama. And I think we intuitively get it right at those two times, at the very beginning and, the, and, and, and at the end. But what happens is in the in-between, we start looking at each other as not our neshamas, not our true selves. We start using other criteria to identify each other. So now, instead of saying, you are this godly, holy being that has graced us here in this world with your presence, now we're starting to look, what kind of grades are you getting in school? What kind of personality do you have? Are you cute? Are you funny? Are you amusing? Do you, are you able to put on your coat and get into the car quickly, or do you make me late? See, when you're in a shama, we're not thinking about these things. Everyone is good. But you spend a little while here in Elam Haza, in this physical world, and people start thinking that you are a whole bunch of stuff that's just superficial, that's really not the real you. And then your nachas in me becomes very conditional on me doing those things well. So I've got to get good grades, and I've got to be obedient, and I have to be able to get dressed quickly and get into the car without making mommy late. 
And if I have any struggles here in this world, I'm causing people pain and, and annoyance, and, and, and I can feel it. I can feel it. I, I can tell you're losing patience with me. So, when we talk about parenting extra-challenging children, I think what we have to begin with before we speak about that as a parsha unto itself, I think we need to visit the foundations of parenting b'chalal. Do you see your child as a neshama? Are, are we human beings having a spiritual experience or are we spiritual beings having a human experience? You know, I was me long before I came to this world. The real me is eternal, infinite, everlasting, holy, incorruptible. Incorruptible. If I believe in Yom Kippur, I believe that. I believe the real me, what we call the Yechidah Shebenefesh, the core identity, we believe that's incorruptible. My nefesh could get a little bit dirty, my, my ruach, my neshama, even my chaya. We believe that there's that core identity in all of us which is pristine and pure and holy and remains so at all times. I mean, that's what we believe. Can we start to see that in our children? Can we start to see them as beautiful and perfect? because they are neshamas, and their neshamas are beautiful and perfect. There was a, a Rav in Tzfas, Rav Chaim Pesach Fetman. He said a vort. There are three things in Torah that are called difficult. Kosha, hard. One of them is Mizenes of Shal Adam, making a living. It's called hard. It's kosha, it's difficult to make a living. Another is Shiduchim, uh, it's called kosha. Kosha, Kikrias Yamsev. And then the third thing that's called difficult. Kriyas Yamsuf itself. So those things are called difficult. So Rafetman says, L'chayra, <laughs> punct these three things which are called kosha, which, which are called difficult, should not be difficult at all because by each one of them we find something striking. That they're all set up beforehand. Mizaynes of Shal Adam, Tsuvenloi, Biyamim Bain Rosh Hashanah, Yemekipurim. So that was set up already. Serasimei Tshuva, the Mizaynes was set up already. Shidduch, Aboyim Yem Kedem Yitzira Savlad, that was set up before, before the baby was born. Kriyas Yamsuf was set up already. When the Abishta made the yam, 
He made it Al-Tanai. He told them in 2,448 years from now, there's going to be this nation, B'nai Yisrael, and they're going to come through, and you're going to suspend the laws of hydrodynamics. You are going to go against your nature, and you are going to split for them. And that was a condition at the moment that the Yam was created. So, L'chayda, all of these things were set up beforehand. What's kosha? So he explains like this. You know what's kosha? <laughs> he says, when was a person's, let, let's start, we'll go one by one. The first one, mezenes of shalom, person's parnasa, is money. When was that set up? In the days between Rosh Hashanah and Yim Kippur. He says, take a look at a guy in the days between Rosh Hashanah and Yim Kippur. He's very, very different than the rest of the year. Whatever level he's on the rest of the year, these days, I said to Shemeshuva, he's on a higher level. He's more careful. And you look at him. Very holy. But then, <laughs> the Avish that comes to find him, to give him his Parnosa in Cheshven, Where's that guy? I can't find him. Where's the guy? That during, I, I don't recognize him. You're the guy. You don't look like the guy. And that's only in Cheshven. <laughs> Imagine by Kislev, by Tavis. Same thing with the Shidduch. The Shidduch was made Lamaila. So they introduced the Chos into the Kala, and they said, ah, Shidduch. But then they came down into the world. And by the time they met each other, they'd been in this world for a while, a little wear and tear, and they don't recognize each other. That's what... Kosha Badashidach is to get these Nishamas to recognize. You're the girl that I met in heaven. You don't look like her anymore. And the same thing with Kriyas Yamsuf. Kriyas Yamsuf, when the Yidin came out of Mitzrayim, they were in Memtes Shari Tuma. That's not a joke. Memtes Shari Tuma means they did everything in the book that could damage your soul. They were at the brink of spiritual extinction. To the extent that there was even a kitrug from Malochim at the time of Chris Yamsuf. They said, what are you going to do a favor for them? Halalu, that these ones, the Mitzrim, serve Avedazora, and these ones, the Yidin, there's no difference. They're also there. Look at them. Look at these Jewish people. Look at the Mitzrim side by side. I don't see any difference between them. You understand what that means? That the Malochim are saying, I'm looking at these Jews you told me about, and they look like Mitzrim. And now the sea is supposed to split? The sea says, you showed me a picture 2,448 years ago. This doesn't look like that picture. And so it's kosha to convince the yam. No, 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 this is them. This is them. So I'll add a fourth kosha. And it's kosha for the exact same reason as those other three. When you saw your child when they were a baby, they were perfect. You didn't have to think, you didn't have to tell yourself how to react to them. It was instinctive. It was instinctive. This is my baby. I'm felling. But what happened is, they became unrecognizable. And you said, this isn't who I had Nachas from. It's not the same kid. This isn't the same baby anymore. 
And you know what's kosher? For you, and no one's going to be able to tell you this. You have to tell it to yourself. You have to sit down, have a talk with yourself, and say, you're wrong. This is the same baby. This is the same bundle of joy. Nothing has changed. And just like when they were a baby, they got your unconditional love because they are nothing, unearned. They didn't do anything, but it was automatic and you didn't even have to think about it. So today, look at them and automatically love them without them having to earn it. Why? I'm a religious Jew. You're telling me to just give approval to people who are not living up to our standards? Oh, you're such a religious Jew? So do you believe in a neshama? If you're educating your child in the way of Torah, do you believe that Torah is real and that neshamas are real? <laughs> a little spirituality you have? So why do you think the baby was so lovable? What, you think evolution programmed it into you? That parents, it's biologically advantageous that parents should, should be kind to, to babies? Or do you believe there's an abishter? Do you believe that there's something real, that the spiritual world is real? Do you believe that it's enduring and it's true? And do you believe that you were able to sense on some level the purity and the beauty and the perfection of this neshama when they first arrived in the world? And all that happened is the days went by, the weeks, the months, the years, and you got fooled and you started looking at the packaging, at the outside, at the body, at the personality, at the, at the, at the mysim, the activities, the behaviors, and you forgot to look and see the truth. And this, this is your, you can only say this to yourself. Can I be truly spiritual? Can I be truly a Jewish parent and see my child as a soul? And it's kosher. Of course it's kosher. It's difficult. But that's your job. And I want to tell you something, mommy and tati. Really? You're mechoyev to do this for every single Jew. <laughs> you know what it says in Pnimiya Satayra about v'yahavtureyach ha'kameicha. It really means you're supposed to see every single Jew as a neshama. But we're just telling you, do it for your own kids. There's a story... In the, I was told I was given water. This is good. Professional setup over here. They put the water under the podium. I'll take a drink. Make a bracha. There's a story in the Gemara, Nidorim Daf Samach Vov Aleph. You know, Nidorim is about Nidorim, about vows. So uh, when somebody makes a nether, one of the things you, you do, I mean, if somebody makes a nether, they're obligated to keep it, but it's also a mitzvah to get out of it. But there's a way of getting out of it. You have to be shoyal. 
you have to go ask a chacham. Only a chacham can release you from the nether. So it's talking about there um, how to do this, to find this Pesach. And without getting into the whole uh, Talmudic discussion here, basically a Pesach means that the Chochem identifies some piece of information. Had I known it b'shas the nether, if I would have known that information when I made that vow, I would have never made that vow. A guy makes a vow, I'm never going to eat milchiks. Ice cream is milchiks? I didn't know that. I thought it was only cream cheese. I didn't know. Okay, so then release him from the vow. So the Gemara there talks about a guy. They had a shidduch for him. And uh, he didn't want it. And uh, basically the reason he didn't want it, he had shallow reasons for not wanting it. He didn't, he didn't like her looks. So they kept bothering him. So he says, guys, back off. And uh, his family kept on recommending it. So finally he just said, I'm making another. Okay. So later on, they brought him to Rabbi Yishmael the Tana, and uh, they wanted to get him out of the nether. So what did Rabbi Yishmael do? This is a remarkable story. Rabbi Yishmael took this girl, and he gave her a makeover. It says he dressed her, and he gave her jewels. Can you imagine that a Tana takes a girl, <laughs> and... Uh, Here's the credit card, go out shopping, make yourself look great. And so this guy comes to Rabbi Yishmael, and while he's there, Rabbi Yishmael brings out the girl, and now she looks unrecognizable. And uh, Rabbi Yishmael says to the guy, he says, is this the girl that you swore that you vowed never to marry? He says, no, not that girl. Which, of course, released him from the vow. Because had I known at the time, I don't know how she felt about that. <laughs> but that's, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is the Gemara then says, Ba'esa Shah, at that moment, Bacha Rabbi Yishmael. Rabbi Yishmael started crying. The Amr, and he said, Rabbeinu Shalalem, kol b'nois Yisrael nois hain. All Jewish girls are beautiful. Elohonius, but poverty, menevalton, mars their beauty. We know in Kabbalah, the neshama is called Bastzion. It's called a daughter. It's called all neshamas are feminine. Even us guys, <clears throat> neshama is actually a feminine word. Neshama. That's why it's a lashon nekeva, and it's married to Hashem. That's what the whole Ishva Isha paradigm and Shir Hashirim is all about. So neshamas are all called Jewish daughters. That's the inner femininity of, of the Jewish man, is he have a neshama, neshamas are feminine. 
Kol benois Yisrael nois hein. All Jewish daughters, all Jewish souls are beautiful. But anius, but poverty. What poverty? Go look. Go look at the poverty. No, I'm not talking about that the, the we can't pay bills. We're probably Begashmius, the richest generation of Jews who ever lived including even the heyday of Shleimah Melech, because even then, if you were rich, what could you buy? An extra piece of fruit? What did they have? Today, where we live like kings, I'm not talking about that kind of a neos. I'm talking about the horrific things that happen in this Gullus. I'm talking about the horrific things that happen to Jewish children in this Gullus. Things that we can't even wrap our minds around, how such things could happen in this world. And every time we think that we've expanded our capacity to accept how crazy the world is, we get challenged another time. We find that, no, it's even crazier than you thought. And we're at least, we're grown-ups. Seemingly, we're, we're a little bit more used to it. We have a little bit more coping mechanisms, a little more experience, or at least we're a little bit more jaded, so maybe our cynicism protects us. But these are children. These are souls who just arrived in the world. They're holy, they're pure, they're innocent. And this anius, this poverty of this gullus, it mars their beauty. And now all of a sudden, you're looking at this beautiful Jewish daughter. And we're calling all, collectively, all souls, Jewish daughters. And you say, nah, not for me, no, not so, not so attractive. Rabbi Yishman was crying. He was crying, he was weeping. That somebody failed to see the inner beauty of one Jewish girl. If there's anything to really cry about, you want to really weep? You want really something to cry about? We need to cry about our own inability to recognize that what was beloved about this child when they were a baby in the crib is just as beloved about them today. And to be a little bit more spiritual and a little less materialistic, a little less physical, a little, little less caught up in things of this world and try to see the neshama. This child is a beautiful, pure, precious, holy neshama. And if they don't look so ay-ay-ay right now, so that's not a reason to reject them. To the contrary, the compassion, it's an even greater cause for pity, for mercy. That such a beautiful creature, a, a, a godly being, came to the world and had to suffer through what it suffered through. So we should have only greater compassion. But to reject, to write off, to even give a hint of dissatisfaction, disappointment, pain, We have to see the truth about our children. 
we have to see their souls. And you're going to tell me, I don't see souls. And I'm telling you that as a mother, as a father, you're going to have to. And you will. And you did. You did. You did. You did. You did. You've done it already. You did it already. You saw them as a soul. You didn't tell that baby in the crib, I don't even know if I like you. Grow up. Learn to speak a few words. We'll go out for coffee. I'll find out if we hit it off. You didn't say that. You looked at that baby and you said, you're perfect. You're everything. You're everything. You're everything. You don't need to do anything more. You don't, need, you don't need to do anything. You just need to be. Be you. And I love you. And I'm proud of you. We need to be able to say that to our children today. Because if you're really a religious Jew, if you really believe that there's something called a soul, then I need you to look at your child and say, you don't need to do anything to make me love you, to make me proud of you. Now, I know this is a sticky discussion because I'm fully aware of the pushback. I'm fully aware of the questions that people ask. Well, really, you're telling them there's no value in, in Shemiras HaMitzvahs. You're telling them they don't have to do anything. They're, 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 they're accepted even if they don't do anything. So let, let me try to explain this in a simple way. It says in Tana Develi Yahu, Shnei Two things came before the world. Ve'eni yoideya eze koidem. But I don't know which one came before the other. I know they both came before the world, but I don't know which came before which. And what are the two things that came before the world? It's actually the first Rashi and Chumash. Bereshis, Beis Reishis. Bishvil, Beis Reishis. Yisrael and Torah, which are both called Reishis. So the world was created for the sake of Jews and for Torah. So Jews and Torah were the reason for creation, not part of creation. Well, Jews, Jews aren't part of creation. No, no, that's, that's the body. But I'm talking about the real you. The soul that existed before creation. And Torah existed before creation. Torah is not a bunch of laws that respond to the realities of the world. It's not like, you know, city council gets together and says, we have this intersection that's very congested and we're going to pass a new law that uh, we're going to put a, uh, a stoplight. We're going to put a third lane on uh, Oak Street. Like, that's how human laws are. You respond to the conditions of this world, and you come up with a rule. Torah is the exact opposite. They're not rules that respond to reality. They are rules that create reality. Like the Zayar says, The Ebishter looked into the Torah and used it as his blueprint to create the world. So I know that Torah and Jews both came before the world, but I don't know which of them came before the other. So says the Torah of Eliyahu, 
But when it says, in Torah, Tzavas b'nei Yisrael, Dabrel b'nei Yisrael, when it keeps on saying that all these things in Torah are addressed to these Jews, who's it talking to? They must already be there. Okay, this is mystical. I don't even know. What are you talking about? Stuff before creation. And now you're hair splitting into in, in, in things before creation. Which one is more before What do I need this for? I'm going to tell you what you need it for. Because the Tony de Vilio explains with a, with, with a mushal. gives a mushal over there. And it says, it's a mushal lamelech. Bas of Adam. A very common mushal in Chazal. A, a physical king. It says he had children. And he hired his uh, Evid Zokin, his elder servant of the house, to be the Malamed of these children, to teach them Drochim Noyim Umaisim Toivim, to teach them pleasant ways of conduct and good behaviors. So says the Tanit of Eliyahu, Who's the king? The Abishta. Who's the king's children? The Eden. What are these good conduct rules that the teacher is teaching? Torah. He says, that's what it means, which one comes before which. It's not that the king had a bunch of rules, and he's like, well, who's going to follow these rules? I better have some kids. <laughs> it's that the king had kids, and he said, and now let me give them rules that will bring out the best in them. Is everyone following this? Not too mystical. Pasha, yeah? Pasha? So, Uvechein, therefore, what does this mean? Torah and Jews both come before the world, but of the two, Jews come before Torah. What does this mean? It means that Torah is there to be Meshamish, to serve that a Jew should be able to be everything that he can be and bring out his best. Scratch that a little bit deeper. What does that mean? When a Jew does a mitzvah, when a Jew lives al-pitayra, that's not what makes them a Jew. That's not what makes them the child of the king. They're already a Jew. They're already the child of the king. The mitzvah is how they express who they already are and will always be, even if they don't act in the way that their father set up for them to act. Because after all, at the end of the day, a child will always be a child. So you want to be really religious, I'm telling you. Torah is not what makes Jews Jewish. Torah is how Jews best express their Jewishness. And of course, we want every Jew to keep tayag mitzvahs, because that's how the Jew expresses most fully their essence. But don't reverse the cause and effect and think that it's doing the mitzvahs that makes them who they are. They are who they are, and they express it by doing certain things. 
So if you look at a Jew, and a Jew is a Jew is a Jew is a Jew, always was and always will be, and they're not acting like it, don't talk to them about what they're doing or not doing. Talk to them about who they are. Who are they, really? Who are they? You got to know, before you tell someone who they are, you got to know who they are. Who is your child? Who is this beautiful baby, this perfect bundle of joy? A neshama, a perfect neshama who doesn't need to do anything to elicit your absolute joy. That didn't change. It just became kasha, became difficult. But that's our job. That's our job. Close your eyes. Imagine that child as a baby. And remember how easy, how intuitive, how natural it was. To cherish them. Don't let go of that. Don't lose that. Because that hasn't changed. Outer stuff changed. Physical stuff. Bodily stuff. Circumstances of being in this world. And I want to tell you something also. I know that there are probably going to be many sessions about trauma. And it's very important to understand trauma. Because when somebody isn't acting like themselves, there's usually a really serious reason for that. When somebody is divorced from their own essence, there's really a, a reason for that. And I mentioned that there are horrifying things that happen in this gullus, unthinkable things that happen to children. And all of those things are traumatizing. I want to tell you something also you may not realize. But for many souls, embodiment itself is the trauma. Maybe you have an extra sensitive kid who's uncomfortable, existentially uncomfortable, just being here in the physical world. You know, these are the kids. I mentioned at one time at the crisis center, I came down where to, uh, was that, Schenectady? Yeah? And, uh, and I told everyone there, when I was a kid, I used to fall down on the, on the ground crying because the tags in my, in my undershirt were bothering me. And you remember that, Avi? That the whole, everyone there was like, the tags! <laughs> like half the room was like, the tags! Like, oh yeah, they knew about that, yeah. Yeah, you know, the kid who's, who, who can't, the kid who's off spilkes at the, at, at the dinner table because uh, his sibling's chewing too loud. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 you know about that. Uncomfortable in your own skin. Imagine, imagine how that feels. Right? And, and, and of course, that's not, that's not all children, but there are definitely children for whom embodiment itself is the trauma. And just being in the physical body with all those stimuli, the sights and the sounds, and it, it, it's, it's, it's like an assault. It can be 
You have to think about it for a second. Imagine if I came in here and I'm trying to talk and there's a, a parade, a marching band coming through and people are you know, banging on drums and playing trombones and there's clowns uh, cartwheeling. You know, imagine trying to enjoy yourself in such a, you know, it's, it's, it's an assault to the senses. So yeah, there are some extra sensitive neshamas. They never really, really settle down in the body. And so embodiment itself can be the trauma or, the part of, or a part of the trauma. I think, I think that's important to realize. So, you have a child, and the child is causing you sleepless nights, and they're causing conflict in the home, and maybe embarrassment, and disturbances, and tension. What I want you to realize is that child is the same beautiful, perfect soul that you saw them as a baby. And part of the healing, not part, the foundation, the first step, the prerequisite, you can't go further without this. The beginning of the healing is to take a step back from your own reactivity to what's happening that's triggering you and go within and get spiritual. And I want to tell you something. All parents know that if you're not naturally inclined to spirituality, parenting will force you to be. And when you're doing extra difficulty parenting, where it's extra kasha, it's extra difficult, it'll force you to be extra spiritual. But what the extra challenging child needs from us is the same thing that all of our children need from us. In fact, I want to tell you something. In a certain way, it's easier to do it for the extra challenging children. And I'll tell you why. Because with the quote-unquote normal, <laughs> there's no such thing as normal. My mother told me there are two kinds of people in the world. Normal people and people who you really know. <laughs> Right. Uh, they read the Shidduch from Australia. Oh, they sound good. <laughs> from Australia, they sound good, right? Um, see, even quote-unquote normal kids, um, what happens is their place in your heart goes from unconditional, the way it was when they arrived in this world, as pure, pristine Nishamas, and then it becomes conditional, becomes based on their pleasing you and being good and listening and obeying and doing well in school. And then what actually happens is even the kids who we claim to have nachas from, we're only having nachas from things that are secondary to their true identity, which is not a terrible thing on its own, but when it's divorced from having unconditional nachas from their true essence, then basically, <laughs> you're going to tell me this is based on Yiddishkeit. 
How is it based on Yiddishkeit when the most basic, essential idea that a neshama came to this world, a neshama is a chelik elikami mal, that that's not the basis for your avas Yisrael of your own child. No, your avas Yisrael, and I put it in quotes because it's not even avas Yisrael, is, is based on the fact that he knows how to obey, he knows how to get, on, get his coat on quickly and get into the car, he knows how to get good grades in school. How, how, how is that avas Yisrael? How is that loving him for his essence? It's not, it's the opposite. See, I, I, I want to explain something. There's such a thing called Nachas Ruch Lafonei Hashem says, when, when the Yidin do my will, I get Nachas from that. And that's a real thing. Obviously, when somebody does good things, you're proud of their accomplishments. But I want to tell you something, that's not the only Nachas. And it's certainly not the most fundamental Nachas. It's secondary. Like I said, the marshal from Tan and Devilio, the children were the children before they had the Torah. The most basic nachas that we have from a Jew is just that they are who they are. And the Abishtah says this about us. The Abishtah says this about us. He says that the Jewish people the Jewish people are the work of my hands to be proud of. Lihispoer means to be proud of. The Ebishter is proud. It doesn't say that he's proud of what you did, of your maisim. No, to the contrary, he's proud of his maisim. The Ebishter says, my actions. The Ebishter looks at an Hashem and says, ah, I did good. That's called, I started using this term a year or two ago, and I'm going to keep using it until it doesn't arouse any reaction anymore, until nobody lifts their eyebrow when I say it. Unconditional pride. And I'm insistent upon the term, unconditional pride. And I'm going to keep saying it until nobody misunderstands it and nobody has trouble with it. And, and, and I'll tell you something. Ten years ago, if you would have said unconditional love, people would look at you like you're crazy. That became normal. Okay. So I'm going to tell you something. And very soon, unconditional pride is going to become normalized. Well, certainly when Mashiach comes and the whole world's going to see that the Abishter has unconditional pride in B'nai Yisrael, then, then that'll be a pretty clear proof. But we're, we're doing it already. We're, we're living Mashiach Dick already here. And we're, we're talking about and experiencing unconditional pride. Know what that means? Unconditional love means, I'm saying it's distinct from unconditional pride. Unconditional love means, I love you, but I can't stand you. Get away from me. You're causing me pain. I can't look at you. And maybe even, because I love you so much, it's so hard for me to look at you right now. Unconditional pride is, it is a joy. It is a pleasure to be in your presence. And I don't even have to say it. If I have to say it, yeah, I shouldn't even... <laughs> you can't fake it. When somebody walks in the room who you're happy to see and you light up, there's these micro-expressions. 
person knows immediately. When you walk in the room, you know if you're wanted. Unconditional pride means just like when you were walking down the hall and you went to go peek on your little baby sleeping in the crib and you opened the door. Nobody told you to smile from ear to ear. You just opened the crack of the door and you're looking at your little precious bundle of joy. What did he do? He didn't do anything. He's asleep. He's being. He's being who he is and that itself. It's a pleasure to behold. So now when this same kid, 15, 16, 17, 18 years later, he hasn't come out of his room all day, maybe for days. Finally, in the middle of the Shabbos meal, he emerges. What's he been doing? God knows what, but we can guess. And he drags himself begrudgingly to the Shabbos table. And he looks how he looks. Do you light up? <laughs> and Shama just walked in the room. I'm asking you if you really believe that any of this is real. I'm talking about Yiddishkeit. If you really believe it's real, not just a cultural thing, then you have to believe in a neshama. And when a neshama enters the room, you light up. And you can't fake it. They know that you're seeing them again the way you saw them when they were a baby. And now all of a sudden, even though their friends were coming to pick them up, eh, now they have a little bit more time to hang out because they're not itching to get out of a place where they know they're not really wanted, a place where they're causing agmas nefesh, a place where they're hardly tolerated. They know that their presence is causing you joy. That's the greatest thing in the world, to hang out in the place where I know I'm causing people joy just by being there. What do you think they're trying to get hanging out with their friends? What do you think they're trying to get with the boyfriends and the girlfriends and those relationships? They're trying to be in a place where they feel wanted. And unfortunately, in many of those places where they think they feel wanted, they're being used. And it's exacerbating the shame and the guilt and the isolation. So for God's sake, you be the one who makes your house the place where they get the reaction of joy, approval, nachas, pride. I told this story two years ago when I was here, and I'm going to tell it again. I was speaking to a father. He came to me. He was talking to me about his, uh, I think he was 18 at the time, 18-year-old uh, son who hadn't been in yeshiva for, I think, the better part of a year. Maybe it was already a year. And he was supposed to be working, but that didn't really happen. And so he's not learning, and he's not working, and he's basically just hanging out in his room with a smartphone. And, uh, you know... And uh, so the father tells me, I'm walking by my kid's room, and he happened to have the door open. I saw him. I saw him sitting there. He's just sitting there. Just does nothing with his life. And I walked in, 
This is what the father tells me. I walked in, I said to him, don't you even want better for yourself? And I want to tell you something. I have compassion on that father, and I know, I know he wasn't trying to stick a dagger in the boy's heart. <laughs> but when you see someone who's clearly not thriving, not in Yiddishkeit, not in Menschlichkeit, Obviously, they want better for themselves. Clearly, for whatever reason, they're incapable right now. But he comes in and he says, don't you even want better for yourself? Now, I wasn't there. I only heard the father's account. But I believe him. He says to me that my son responded to me and said, you're never proud of me. Now, I thought that was remarkable. Because actually this child, even though he just got the dagger in his heart, did a remarkable job of articulating his emotional needs in that moment. I, and and that's, that's incredibly vulnerable because you know you're being judged. You know you're a source of disappointment. And to be able to go out on a limb like that and to say, you're never proud of me, that took guts. So the father says to the son... That's not true. Remember two summers ago when you were a counselor in camp? I was proud of you. Now, if you don't know how bad that is, <laughs> that's, you take the dagger that's already in the heart and you twist, right? That would be like a woman tells her husband, you never say you love me. He says, no, no, no. I distinctly remember April 12th, 1987. That's, I told you then that I love you. Thanks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so he says, oh, I was proud of you two years ago. You were counseling camp. And the kid says to the father, are you proud of me now? And I, I said to the father, I said, please, what did you say to him? He says, I told him no. Now, thank God people here are gasping. But I want to tell you something. Not everyone here gasped. Because some people are listening, they're thinking, and it's actually very normal to think this. Well, what do you want him to say? The kid isn't learning, he's not working, he's in his room 23 and a half hours a day, except for the half an hour he comes down to raid the refrigerator between 3.15 a.m. and 3.45 a.m. He's in there 24-7 with the smartphone, doing God knows what, although we probably could figure out. And he says, are you proud of me right now? I mean, no. What, 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 what? And that's what the father said to me. He says, because uh, I, ga I gasped. I said, Whew. and he said, what do you want me to do, lie? And I said to him, you're a religious Jew. I don't understand. How can you not be proud of him when Hashem is proud of him? He says, Hashem's proud of him? He didn't, I don't think he put on filling in months. said to him, My Siyod Eli is poor. 
the work of my hands to be proud of. The Abishta looks at every Jew and he says, I'm proud of you, not because of anything you did. That's the second thing, and I said that already. I made it to that. There's something called Nachas Ruch Lafonish Amartiv and Nasaritzaini. I'm not pretending it doesn't exist. Of course it exists. I get Nachas from who you are and I get Nachas from what you do. But which comes before which? <laughs> the what you do is only valuable because of who you are. Does that make sense to you? Do you know, I mean, I'm a Lubavitcher. I've gone on many street corners with tefillin and asked Jews, excuse me, sir, are you Jewish? Would you like to put on tefillin? And I've gotten turned down many, many times. I want to tell you something. If I would go to Oklahoma and go to any town in Oklahoma, I could stand on a street corner from dawn until dusk putting on tefillin with Goyim. They would love to do it. But it has no value. Why not? Because putting on tefillin doesn't make you Jewish. Putting on tefillin is something that a Jew does to express his essential Jewishness. So the action isn't what gives the person value. The person is what gives the action value. So <laughs> there are two things. Nachas from who you are, which is unchanging, because who are you? Who are you? A, a Jew, a neshama. Does that change? It can't change. So I'm, and am I proud of who you are? Yes. And are you always who you are? Yes. So am I always proud of who you are? Yes. There's a second thing called, am I proud of your actions? But we, we act like that's the only way to have nachas. But you didn't do that when he was a baby. You didn't tell him, get up and do some tricks for me. Learn a few words and say something cute for me. When he was a baby, you were in tune with the reality that this is a neshama that doesn't have to earn your approval or your nachas or your pride. It was given automatically. And you were right. You were 100% right then. And just some things happened that made us get distracted by some secondary issues and, and we forgot who they really are. And it's kosher. It is kosher. It is difficult to see someone as they really are when they don't present as who they really are. And, and when the Yamsuf said, these are not the Jews you showed me. He wasn't trying to be a troublemaker. He didn't recognize them. But I want to tell you something. At the end of the day, that sea split. Because the Jews, no matter how they looked coming out of Mitzrayim, were those same precious souls that existed before the world. And your heart will split. Your heart will break open. And the, and the klipa kosha, the ice, the self-protection that you had to do to survive, to cope, to deal with, with, with the busha and the pressure and, and, and the heartbreak and the worry and the sleepless nights, you, had, you get some calluses, you get some scars. That's going to open up. That's going to open up. That's going to open up. Because you're going to look at your child and you're going to say, this is a beautiful boy. And then, my guts are opening, are melting, my heart is melting for him. Have compassion on him. 
But you have to see that he's the same Bain Yakir, Yelich Shashuyim, beautiful, precious, cherished, delightful. Shashuyim means delightful. And then Homo Mei, I didn't. My, my, my scars on my heart, they'll open up, they'll melt away. I'll have a soft heart again to this beautiful child. And we all deserve to be seen this way. Every one of us deserves to be seen this way. And maybe sometimes I think that the reason that the Abishter has caused so much of this to happen is to force us to learn how to start seeing each other this way. When a child who's not yet giving you things to be proud of what they're doing forces you to get in tune with their being. And then you could do that for everyone. You can do it for your other kids. You can do it for your spouse. Wouldn't that be wonderful to be in a marriage where your spouse is delighted to see you? Not because of whether you made money, not because of whether you took them on a trip, not because of how you look, not because you smile and agree to what they say, but they're delighted to see you because you are you. Wouldn't you feel, wouldn't you just breathe a sigh of relief knowing that you were in such a safe relationship where you are seen and validated and cherished just for being? Of course you would. And I want to tell you something also. I think a Shabbos like this is a taste of that too. Because over here, it's probably the most non-judgmental gathering in Klal Yisrael. And when you're here, <laughs> it's funny because you see people, I'm not going to be here this Shabbos, but you see people throughout the Shabbos. At first, when they meet each other, you see they do the, the, the rituals that they do out there where they have to like project the, the image the image that they worked very hard on developing that earns them whatever social credit. You know, like in China, they have the social credit system. Yeah, so we also have a social credit system, you know? And it, it, it determines a lot, you know, what schools your kids get into, and Shidduchim, and Mafter Yena, and all the good stuff. And then you see by the end of the Shabbos, a bunch of neshamas, people just being, not having to earn the right to be present. And you know why I think that happens here? Because there's so many people in this room who have that practice, who've learned how to do this. You didn't have a choice. And, and there are people who are at different stages of, of the process, you know, some are still trying. Some are still insistent that I can withhold nachas from a neshama in order to leverage their behavior. And if that's where you're at, I, I can't tell you to artificially accelerate the process. Maybe that's what you have to continue going through. And if it works, by the way, wonderful. But I think a lot of people who reach this point are already ready. 
sometimes they call it being sick and tired of being sick and tired. <laughs> like, you know what? I'm done. Okay, good. So I got something. All of you who gave up, you're ready to just surrender. I got something for you. It's called the truth. The truth is your child is an infinitely, unconditionally worthy, beautiful, precious soul who you automatically light up for when they enter the room. That's all they ever were, and that's what they will always be. We have to reach inside of ourselves. We have to get back in tune with ourselves. We have to bring out our own souls and look at them soul to soul. One soul recognizes another soul. Can you imagine how your whole home will change when this child in pain forces you to start seeing souls? And then before you know it, you'll walk out of the house and you'll start doing it for the neighbors. Yeah, that nudnik, you'll see him. Oh, he's a soul. And you go to shul. That guy, he's talking. Get him out. No, no, he's a soul. <laughs> you go to the store. A guy cuts you in line. No, it's also a soul. Out on the, on the, on, on the highway, you're driving road rage. No, it's a soul. <laughs> I really do believe in some way, and it's not to explain it because... Only the Abishter knows these things. But you can see for yourself that the deep spiritual work that is demanded of parents of children in pain causes these parents eventually to become the most spiritual people that we have in our community today. You are the people who see souls. And very, 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 very soon Mashiach is coming. And the whole world's going to see the truth. And we're going to see how beautiful all of us were all along. <laughs>